All right, if you would, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Hey, if you're a guest, my name is Jonathan. I serve as one of the pastors here at New Hope. And just really grateful uh, for you and grateful that you are here. We'd love to meet you after service. We're in a series where we're walking through the Gospel of John in uh, We're going to spend the rest of the year doing it, but still, you're going to see today, we're going to cover all of John 6 in one sermon. Um, And so we're still not necessarily going word by word through it slowly, but we are still going kind of in order as we unpack it. But before we get to today's sermon, there are two non-sermon related things that I want for us to talk about uh, together now, one I'd mentioned first, I'd mentioned the last couple of weeks, we were going to have, kind of have a parent meeting a little bit um, as we get ready for the summer and kind of give you some idea of what some, some uh, changes for the summer are. Um, and so let me kind of give those quickly and then kind of talk through a few things. Um, we have kids in service with us. We started um, really kind of during COVID when we were kind of transitioning back. We didn't have full ministries going because of capacity, and we started um, having... Uh, elementary and preschool age kids in service with us. Prior to COVID, we had never done that. We had always had kids from the moment you came in, you would drop them off. And we started doing that, one, because it was a practical thing we needed to do for capacity. But second, because the team during that time also started working through really our uh, how to think through discipleship for uh, kids. And so we said, hey, we want to start bringing kids into service with us. I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, and so we've kind of uh, kind of done that. In the past, in the summer, we've cont- also taken a break from normal elementary age ministry and have continued a preschool age ministry. Uh, and so this summer, this is the last Sunday, technically, of our school year. And then starting next summer begins our summer calendar and kind of summer Sundays. So that changes things for kids, but also changes things in other ways. Like for one, we're starting our summer cookouts that we did last year every Sunday, this next Sunday. So, yep, hang around every week after service for some burgers, hot dogs, and things like that. But also, so uh, for kids this summer, from the time you come in, you can drop all uh, completed kindergarten, Brittany, am I saying this right? Completed kindergarten, so like going into first grade age kids and down, will be invited to go ahead and join us for kids ministry downstairs. But then we will keep all the older elementary age kids in here the entire service. Like just now we dismiss them before the sermon. Starting next week through July and August, we'll allow and encourage elementary age kids to stay in with us. We will have things for them uh, to help them follow along with the sermon. I'll intentionally, if you didn't grab one when you came in, but I have an outline for my sermon, I'll intentionally add... Uh, something for the kids on that outline to help them follow along. We'll have other activities. We'll find ways to continue to help them be engaged during the sermon, but they'll stay with us uh, throughout the entire summer. So be aware that that's happening, and we'll have details, and we'll have things that will encourage you. One of the things with that, and this is, uh, I want to just have a simple kind of housekeeping type conversation I mentioned we made the transition to allow, uh, not just to allow, but we wanted younger kids to be with us during worship and then dismiss them as opposed to just dropping them off from the very beginning because we felt like uh, discipleship is more caught than taught. 
meaning we have the opportunity to set an example for the next generation on how to worship. And we felt like one of the best ways we could teach uh, elementary age kids to worship was for them to be in worship with us, for them to follow along with us and for them to see those things. And we talked about the importance of that experience and we said that with having younger kids in the room means at times we're going to have more distractions than usual in the room. And for us, that's a price we are gladly willing to pay in order to see spiritual formation happen with our kids. All right? So that is the goal. Now, here's the honest moment for a second. Over the last six months to a year, I don't know that we have always done that well, meaning where we've enabled and allowed distractions and capitalized on those moments in order to bring about spiritual formation. And at times, distractions have just been distractions. And so in this parent meeting, and one of the things we're going to try to do over the summer is I want to give us specific examples of how we capitalize on distractions for the sake of spiritual formation. So, for example, um, with my kids in service, my kids, your kids, any kids in service, we're going to have moments where kids are going to ask us questions. We're going to have moments where kids are going to talk. We're going to have moments where they go, hey, what does, what does it mean, Ebenezer? Like, what, what, I don't understand what that song means. And we're going to have moments where we're going to hear kids talk, and we're going to have moments where they're going to be a distraction. But each of those moments give us an opportunity to teach and engage and bring about spiritual formation. And so here's the idea. Yes to, um, yes to temporary distractions that lead to spiritual formation, but not, we don't want distractions that without spiritual formation. So here's the challenge to you parents, is we recognize that distractions are going to come with having younger kids in the room. Perfectly fine with that. But the challenge to you as a parent and to us as a community is, hey, we don't want to just allow distractions to be distractions, but, how, but the kids are here. How can we take an opportunity uh, to teach them? And so there are going to be some um, basic, I say, ground rules that we want to encourage you with of going, hey, like just because we're okay with distractions doesn't mean we just want to allow distractions. So practical bits of advice, we want to encourage uh, you not to let kids play with the knee, the knee things, the kneeling uh, things. I, my son was playing with it in worship, and I asked him to stop. When kids are talking and not paying attention, we want to encourage you to take that moment to say, hey, do you, do you understand what we're singing? Do you understand what this means? Um, Ella, I w- we were singing just a moment ago, and I asked her, do you know what raise a hallelujah means? And she said, And she said no. And so I used an example of, when we pray at night and something we do, and I kind of related it to it. Well, that was a distraction maybe to those sitting around me that I was talking to my child, but we want to recognize that we want to bring about spiritual formation. So encouragement to us is, hey, just because we're okay with distractions does not mean we want to continue distractions. (laughs) Uh, DJ, who is a much younger kid, uh, was with me a minute ago, and we had told him shh enough times that I leaned over him at one point to say something to him, and he went shh right back at me. And I was like, okay, well, I'm, my goal is not to teach kids to shh, you know, like I hope they learn other things in church. But the point was, there was an engagement that was taking place. And so I just want to encourage you, hey, in weeks to come, how can we as a church just continue to take moments where we go, hey, kids are going to be a distraction, we're fine with that, but how can we capitalize that on that? For the sake of teaching them to worship. 
you know, I want to encourage you that sometimes as a parent, that is, that is a difficult thing to do. Honestly, there are some moments where it would just, I go, I just really just want to drop my kids off and come in and worship without the kids around. But I just want to encourage you with this, is that discipleship is difficult, but it's worth it. And engaging our kids during worship is worth it. Uh, just recently, my wife was telling me, because um, Sam hasn't come to me yet. He always goes to mom first before he comes to dad. Um, and, but Jenna came to me this afternoon and said, Sam started having conversations and asking questions about baptism. And what does it mean? And that I th- he, th- he thinks he's ready because he understands what that means. Now, one, that's in- super encouraging as a parent. I, I don't know if that's because he's been in worship or he's been under Brittany's teaching or he's been, it's probably a combination of all those things. It's a combination of home conversations, combination of conversations here and conversations in other places. But I'm just grateful. It's in that moment where I go, all the intentionality at night and reading the Bible before bed and praying with him, all the intentionality in worship, all the intentionality in other ways um, makes all of that worth it when he has conversations like that. So I just want to end with this part by saying, Hey, when we disciple our kids during worship, sometimes it causes us not to be able to pay as much attention in worship, but it's worth it. Discipleship and discipling our kids is worth it. So that's the first thing. We'll give activities. We'll give things for your elementary age kids. In in the sermons, I'll try to find intentional ways to engage them. Um, One of the things I'm going to have for them is kind of a main point of the sermon. You know that we have a main point of the sermon on that outline. And one of the things I'm going to ask them each week that if they come to me after the service and tell me what the main point is and we have an opportunity to talk about it, I want to engage your kids each week. Then they're going to go to Brittany and show them that they talk to me and talk to her and then she's going to give them some candy and stuff. And it's just going to encourage, find ways to motivate them to not only listen, but also me to be able to engage with the kids more. And so looking forward to it, but I encourage you also as parents, let's find ways to continue to teach and encourage. Second thing, not related to the sermon, but I want to jump into, is I want to speak to um, the Supreme Court ruling of Roe versus Wade. Um, if you are unaware, that Supreme Court made a ruling that basically just took abortion from the federal level and allowed it to be at the state level. And there are three things I want to say about this unapologetically. First is I can be honest and say that as a Christian— who believe scriptures that every person is created in the image of God from conception, that I can celebrate, firstly, this ruling and this decision. Now, I understand that it'd be careful anytime we start talking about politics, but in my opinion, this is not a political statement. This is a deeply biblical and theological statement that all people are made in the image of God. And for that reason, um, I can celebrate, and we as Christians can celebrate the protection of life. Once again, I know there are a lot of caveats in the conversation of that, but let me just start by saying that as I, as a pastor and as a Christian, who we as a church would say that we value Scripture as our first value, reading Scripture, therefore we turn to the Bible as our ultimate guide for life and truth, the value it puts on life causes us to, should cause us to celebrate this decision. But second along with that, We must be a people in celebrating the protection of life because we believe in the image of God in every person. We must be a people who show compassion and not condemnation in that celebration. I've had um, the honor of counseling women who have struggled 
through abortions, have had abortions, and have gone through this process. And I can tell you, the, the, from it, just from their counseling, the journey that they're on, and at times, the condemnation and the shame they feel from people who rightfully so celebrate the life and the pro-life idea from a biblical perspective. And they feel at times condemned for Christians in that celebration. And so I just want to say this, that if you're in here today and you have had, a, had an abortion or you have struggled with that, or you in any way feel the guilt and shame related to that in any one way or another, I want you to hear me say that as we celebrate life because we recognize all we're made in the image of God, there's nothing but compassion for you from not only us, but from a Jesus who loves you. That there is hope in Jesus and there is not shame because of maybe guilt you feel or don't feel from this decision. But nonetheless, even if you disagree with me, and potentially, as I communicate my belief on the subject, you might inevitably feel condemned. And I want you to know that that should not be the case. Please do not hear anything but compassion. And as if we were to talk about this in the public sphere, as you talk about it with neighbors and others, our response should be compassion. Third, I want to say this, is that we are to give our cooperation. Give our cooperation. What do you mean by this? You know, Prior to now, you've never heard me talk about abortion. Not because I didn't have a strong opinion about it, but I just felt that there were enough people on Twitter and my 10 followers, if I were to talk about it, it honestly wouldn't make that much of a difference. That I felt like there was enough being said and I just, it just never, it never really came up. But I need you to understand something. Is that as someone who has a daughter who is adopted and her mom who came and asked us to adopt her said to me, said to Jen and I, Prior to Ella, I had an abortion, and I still struggle with the guilt and shame of that, and I'm unwilling to have another abortion, but I know I cannot raise this daughter. Literally asked us, would you adopt our daughter? In which to our response was yes, and that's this real quick story of Ella. Meaning that if we are people who say that we care about the image of God in life, and that means that in, there are going to be more babies born now than there were before, and there, but it the doesn't change necessarily the circumstances around that pregnancy or around the situation of that family. And if we're going to people, be a people who advocate and celebrate life, then we must be a people who cooperate in order to continue to protect that life. We must be a church that steps up and go, we will cooperate and we will adopt and we will foster care and we will give to these things. I hear this conversation, and you're just going to hear a personal pet peeve for a second. As someone who's been around foster care my entire life, I have a brother who's adopted. I have six nieces and nephews who are adopted. My mom's had, mom and dad have had over 90 foster children, and I have a kid who's adopted. So just understand, this is a life of mine. This is a passion of mine. So here's a pet peeve of mine. People come to me all the time and say, oh, it's so great that you adopted. I could never do that. Well, guys, listen to me. I don't have some supernatural ability that you don't. And so I'm not saying adoption is necessarily for everyone, but I am saying it's, a, it's for a lot more people than they think there is that it's for. Meaning that if Scripture tells us to take care of orphan and widows, in that culture, orphan and widows, orphans were unable to provide for themselves. Uh, widows were unable to provide for themselves. So why would James say true religion is to take care of orphan and widows? What he's saying is true religion is to take care for the helpless and hopeless who cannot take care of themselves. Well, that means at times we must step up. And so... I want to spend a moment praying, but I want to also take a moment as your pastor and speak on this subject. We celebrate life. We show compassion with people who disagree with us or have struggled through this journey.
but then also as a church, we must now be willing to advocate for the born as much as we're willing to advocate for the unborn. We must cooperate in ways in order to adopt, show foster care, and care for families and care for moms who are in need through various reasons of pregnancy. So I want to take some moment. I want to pray. I want to pray um, that these things would be true, that we could take a moment and we could celebrate. We could take a moment and what does it mean for us to show compassion? And then we can ask the Lord, what does it mean for me and my family and for us as a church to cooperate in order to care for the lives that will be born. So would you join me now as we pray? Jesus, we come to you and we recognize that you have created man in your image. Scripture says, all of mankind is made in your image. We bear the sanctity of life in each and every one of us. And so we take a moment and we celebrate this decision. I do, I celebrate this decision, what it means for the protection of life. And so, Father, we pray that you would, us specifically as a church, New Hope, and the church within America, because a lot of times I think the church in America celebrates and gloats in an unhealthy way when something politically goes their way. And that just, it abhors me. So let us be a church that even as we can be honest and speak, I can be honest about celebration, my heart is a heart of compassion for circumstances that often maybe lead to abortion. That for many, many moms maybe in random and specific situations may think abortion is their only hope. Let us be a church that shows compassion and care for families in such a way that they would see the hope is in Jesus. And we as the church are here to come and cooperate and support you any way we can. And here's the thing, we as a small church can't, can't help out everything in our city, but guess what? Someone may, we may encounter one mom, like Jenna and I did one time, and we can play our part. And so I pray that we as a church, as you allow us the opportunity to come into contact in ways that we can cooperate in order to love and help encourage families, in order to just help bring about hope within their lives. Would you show us as individuals, as families, as a church, how we can show compassion and help out and show that we really believe the word of God, that we really will, true religion, love Jesus and take care of orphans and widows. We will care for those in our community that at times feel hopeless and helpless. We'll care for the orphan child. We'll adopt into our home. We will recognize that you have given us the blessings that we have, and maybe that as you bring a situation our way, we'll step up and sacrifice in order to protect and help out for that child. So Jesus, we just ask for your guidance as a church. We pray for families that have been at times broken by how the church responds to things, broken maybe even by abortion and the hurt that may, may come with that that they may feel. I pray there's just nothing but great compassion and forgiveness upon them, that your love would be so great, that in the same way I have sinned against you and you've forgiven me of my sin, that you would forgive of all of our things that we have done to sin against you, and that there would be not condemnation in this place. But if we are in you, there is no longer condemnation, but there is grace and forgiveness, and so might you bring that healing into lives. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 6. Now, you're looking at your watches and going, come on, Pastor. We got like 20 minutes left, and you got like 100 verses in John chapter 6. It's not quite 100 verses, but it's a lot. So, and we, if you're new... Um, and you're asking the question, is this a short pa- preaching pastor or a long-winded pastor? Yeah, hate that for you. Um, I'm, I'm quite long-winded. But I am going to be brief. Uh, for the sake of time and for the sake of the remaining time, I want us to jump in to the truth. So if you have a handout today, here's the main point of the sermon. Jesus is the soul-satisfying bread. Bread is going to be an emphasis of the text, and so once you read the text, you're like, all right, that'll make a little more sense. But Jesus is the soul-satisfying bread. I want to, we're just going to read John 6, 22 through 40, but let me talk about two really important miracles that are just going to intro our, uh, the sermon today. First, when we get to John chapter 6, we see Jesus feed the feeding of the 5,000. Now, there are only two miracles in all of Scripture Uh, or excuse me, in all the Gospels that are repeated, Uh, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all have different miracles. Mark may tell of one, and Luke doesn't include it. But there are two that are in all four, the resurrection and the feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000, as a a second to the resurrection, is the only miracle that is referenced in all four Gospels. Basic story, if you haven't heard the story yet, it's an incredible story, go and read it. As Jesus comes and he begins to teach a crowd, says of 5,000 men. Now, how many women and children are there, we don't know. But because we recognize it was right on the heels of an important religious holiday in the Jewish culture, which was predominantly only visited by men, it probably wasn't a 50-50 ratio. So some have at times would speculate, well, if there are 5,000 men, their chances are there's also 5,000 women. So that's approximately 10,000. Then you got kids. Now there's anywhere between 12, 13, and 15,000 people here. That's possible, but chances are this was a male-heavy crowd but it, that doesn't mean there wouldn't have been women and children. But there's at least 5,000 plus maybe three or 4,000. We don't know. Anywhere between 5,000 and 15,000 people. But 5,000 men, it says, were here in this moment. Jesus is teaching them in a remote location where 5,000 people are present. All of a sudden, not, I mean, over time, they get hungry. And the disciples are like, hey, send them away so they can go and eat. It, we need a lunch break. If you've ever been to a, uh, an all-day conference, we need lunch breaks. But this is one of those conferences where Jesus is just teaching and teaching and teaching. And the disciples are like, they need a break. And so Jesus turns to them and says, hey, you feed them, right? Like, you feed them. And they're like, how are we supposed to feed them? We don't have near enough money. Even if we had money, how are we going to go get the food? You know, they don't really have Seamless or Uber Eats at this time. Like, how are we going to get all these food, Right. And so Jesus has this moment where he goes and finds this little boy that has some fish and some loaves. And Jesus does this miracle and he multiplies it and everybody eats. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the crowd at the time sees this and they're like, whoa, like this must be the Messiah. Now, keep in mind, when they think about Messiah, they're thinking about a physical king who's going to remove them from under the rule of Rome and set them apart as their own nation again. They're, They're looking for their independence and so they see Jesus, well, if he can make miracle happen out of food, then he can like surely do miracles to kill a bunch of armies, and so he needs to be our king. And so the crowd tries to forcefully take him to be their king. And what he does is he slips away. Well, let me just read John 6, 
15. It won't be on the screen. But it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he slipped away from the crowd. He got away. He had already sent his disciples. And so miracle one was the feeding of 5,000. Well, at nighttime, the disciples are, on, are in a boat trying to get to the other side. And Jesus begins to walk on water towards them. Pretty incredible. Uh, a couple weeks ago, for whatever reason, it was super fascinating. The miracle was the first man to ever walk on water. <laughs> All right, I'm a preacher. I got to click on that, see what this is. And it was a video of a guy um, who had taken two huge volleyball, uh, um, beach volleyballs, had cut it, put his foot in it, sealed it around him, blew it up, and tried to walk across his swimming pool in these like inflatable shoes. It went poorly. It was a waste of like six minutes of anticipation because I was like, I'm actually curious. Would this allow him to float? First step, he went down. It was a waste of time. But the point is, it's fascinating. You're, you're telling me someone's walking on water, and in fact, we see this miracle that Jesus walks on water. Now, not specific to what we're about to get into in John, but we understand from other expanded versions, specifically of Jesus walking on water, that Jesus is doing something within his disciples. In both the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, he is teaching his disciples. It's a beautiful thing we don't have time to get to. But then we get to our text. It's the next day, and Jesus begins to teach the crowd again. So let's pick up the story. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. It's now the next day, John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that, there had, um, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus." Remember, they're looking for this guy that fed them. Pretty exciting. God would want to find him too. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we might see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus, and excuse me, and they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus makes this statement. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. 
All the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Overall truth, Jesus is the soul-satisfying bread. Truth number one, just kind of unpack this a little bit. First is Jesus is to be received by each one of us personally for himself. Jesus is to be received, the bread that is to be received, by each one of us personally for himself. You've got to see this in relation to the feeding of the 5,000. You have this moment where Jesus blesses and the disciples go and they hand out this bread that people receive and they eat for the nourishment of their body. Then the next day they come looking for more of this and Jesus says, hey, no, what you really need is is bread that will give you life for eternity, this bread that will nourish you forever. And they're like, yes, great, let's eat that bread too. And Jesus begins to allude to this idea and they talk about this and Jesus goes, hey, we need a sign. We need a sign that this is of God because in the Old Testament, our forefathers got this sign from God when he gave manna that sustained them every single day. It was a miraculous bread that sustained them every single day for physical life. And Jesus is basically saying that, yes, you need that spiritually. And they ask the question, okay, what is the sign then? And Jesus simply says, I am that sign. When he makes the statement, I am the bread of life, That whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a beautiful idea, not only as we look at the feeding of the 5,000, but when we look in the Old Testament, is that God, in caring for his people, gave food, manna in the Old Testament, and in the day before, for these people, the feeding of the 5,000, gave them food to provide for them physically in order to illustrate in a very intentional way what Jesus does for us spiritually. And so when Jesus makes this statement, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that was the Father has given to you for life. Je- or excuse me, the Father in the Old Testament gave you manna to eat. The Father in the New Testament has given you me to eat for all eternal life. Now, we're not, we didn't read this, but the rest of this next section basically says, Jesus goes, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to have life. And people are like weirded out by that. And all the people leave him. They're like, all right, we're tracking with you when you're doing cool miracles. But now you're talking about this weird eating stuff, eating flesh, and we're, we're not on board with that. And so they leave. But we understand because we know the rest of the story. What he was referring to was the Lord's Supper and the elements of the Lord's Supper and what that represented as trusting in Jesus because of the sacrifice of his life, trusting in him for eternal life. So when we talk about Jesus is the soul-satisfying bread, and truth number one, Jesus is to be received by each one of us personally for himself, here's the challenge of the claim that Jesus makes when he says, I am the bread of life. And the challenge is, will you come to him hungry, and will you receive him for eternal life? Now, he's being very illustrative, but the same idea is happening when we eat the Lord's Supper. What we're saying is not this actual cracker or juice that we're taking, But it represents that as we eat this, we represent that this is Jesus who gives us life. He is the bread of life and that we are to receive him personally unto salvation. 
He says this in verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. We'll see this again in John chapter 17. But if you go back to verse 29, it says this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. John 17 says the eternal life is that you believe in the father and whom he has sent his son, Jesus Christ. Over and over, if you remember even last week's sermon, it was simple, believe in Jesus for eternal life. I, I really struggled not to make that the main point again this week. Because as you're beginning to see the gospel of John, every story John is writing over and over and over again so that we could believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really is the one that we trust in for eternal life, which is no surprise because John 20 verse 30 says, John writing about why he wrote this gospel says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by, that by believing in him you may have a life in his name. I hope if you track him with us in this series, you at least get one thing over and over and over again, that the Bible clearly claims that Jesus is the one and only person who offers us eternal life that there is no other bread of life that is given by God unto man other than Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When we look at John chapter 1, verse 14, we're coming to that, getting close to that in our memorization. It says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is saying, I am the bread that the Father sent so that you could have eternal life. And that as we receive him, each one of us, personally unto him, we may have eternal life. And so the question for truth number one is, have you received the bread of life, Jesus Christ, into your heart? Meaning, have you recognized that he is the one sent by God in order to make a way so that you could be redeemed back unto him? So that what? If you will come to him, whoever believes in him will never thirst again and may have eternal life. This is the exact claim of Jesus. And we've got to deal with that claim. We've got to either ignore it and say this was someone who doesn't know what he's talking about, or we've got to recognize that what if he, what he's saying is true, that he is, in fact, the bread of life, which leads us to truth number two. Not only is Jesus to be received by each one of us personally for himself, but truth number two, where Jesus is received, he is supremely satisfying. As we think about the illustration of him saying, I am the bread of life, it's clearly pointing to the fact that the Father sent him as representation of just like the man in the Old Testament to give life to his people. So it clearly speaks to that idea of truth number one of life, but it also speaks to this truth and this reality that John chapter 6, when the feeding of the 5,000 happened, it says that they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus is not only the provision that allows us to have life, but he's also the provision that gives us satisfaction in life. It's the reason why here at New Hope, we say that our mission is to connect people to a life satisfied in Jesus. We understand that, yes, we want to see people saved in Jesus, meaning we want to see people repent of their sin, confess that they have sinned against God, turn to him and trust in Jesus as the one who made a way for forgiveness of our sins, trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. We want everybody to find that salvation in Jesus, but we also recognize that that salvation is because we want our hearts to be supremely satisfied in Jesus. 
at the end of the day, I want to turn to Jesus, not just because he rescues me from my sin, but because he restores me unto himself for all eternity. Salvation, the greatest thing about salvation is not that I'm rescued from my sin, but in being rescued from my sin, not minimizing that, but in being rescued from my sin, I'm being restored to the longing that my heart was created for, which was satisfaction in Jesus. Jesus, by saying, I am the bread of life, he's not just offering life, but he's offering satisfaction in life. He is the one who supremely satisfies you and I. And so, as a way of application to the non-Christian in the room who may be coming and going, hey, I'm kinda, I may have come with a friend or I'm coming to ask questions. I want you to hear that even in us talking about parenting, us talking about Roe versus Wade, and us talking even about this, that there is a God who loves you and has a great compassion for you, that he came and lived in order that you might know how much he cares for you, that he has come not, as John 3 says, not to condemn because we stand condemned already, but he comes that we might have life and life for all eternity. That the story of here of the gospel for, that we will preach at New Hope is that Jesus loves you and Jesus offers you life. Might you turn to him and receive that life? Might you trust in him as Lord and Savior? And then second way of application for the Christian in the room. Is Jesus the all soul satisfaction in your life? It's so easy. It's so easy to be pulled away thinking other things are going to satisfy It happens all the time. I battle it every single week. Something comes along. Will this be the thing that satisfies? And whatever it is, because our hearts are easily tempted to pursue other things, and we must be reminded over and over and over again just by the truth that Jesus satisfies our souls. And so we started today's tech, I mean, started today's worship gathering with Jeremiah 29. Might you seek him with all your hearts? So the call today for all in the room is, might you seek Jesus? Might you receive him as the bread of life that he claims to be to offer you eternal life? And might you find satisfaction in your life in Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we in here today would have a humble heart that isn't just coming to you saying, hey, what can you give us? like the crowd did in this moment. They're like, hey, we'll see this other sign and miracle. What what you got for us? What you got for us? But instead, that we would just in humility see you as King of kings and Lord of lords and recognize more than we need anything physical in this world, our hearts need you. Our souls long for you, whether we even realize it or not. And that our souls will never find their satisfaction in anything apart from you. Why? Because you created our souls for you. And our souls will not find their rest until they find their rest in you. And so I pray that every person in here today, the Spirit of God, that you would just help them do the work of God that Scripture says, which is to believe in you. Our call today is to believe and trust in you. And might you just pour out your abundant love, compassion, mercy, and grace, and soul satisfaction in our life because you are the soul-satisfying bread of our life. Nothing else satisfies quite like you. So might we find our satisfaction in you today. We love you and we worship you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.